Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd, and in this conversation, recorded in September 2019, I speak with Carl North, a farmer, a, a systems teacher. Uh, his website is Eco Intelligence. It's Carl North, K-A-R-L North.com. And he has a set of core papers and an introduction to systems thinking course that are just really fabulous. Uh, he's also a good writer and uh, just a beautiful soul, an older brother on the sustainability path. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. People who aren't familiar with you or your website, if you could just sort of give us a little sense of, of your background and sort of what you bring to the world. And then if you could just take a few minutes uh, and just highlight some of the, the, some of the more important stuff up on your website. And again, it's K-A-R-L-North.com. Well, uh, you, I, I can talk better about it when I talk about kind of my journey to this we're, the worldview we're going to talk about. Okay, well, that's fine. Uh, the Carl North Intelligence is a combination of um, early learning about how our society, work, our modern society works. So I've written a, a more recent uh, kind of discussion of that called The Age of Modernity and Its Discontents. Um, I, but also learning about how um, the larger natural world works both as ecosystems, as complex systems, and as historical systems through my study of anthropology. And I was very lucky to be in a kind of a program, a graduate program that emphasized the ecological base of societies that we studied. Yeah, that's great. So that, well, why don't you let that... Yeah, why don't you let that lead into sort of the really the heart of this particular conversation series is various uh, teachers, thought leaders, uh, some a few activists as well, but, but folks sharing their own personal journey of how they, you know, what, what, what their worldview was like growing up and their education and how you came to, for yourself, how you came to an understanding of an ecological worldview, how you came to a systems understanding of reality, and also a, a sense of contraction, of collapse, of, of uh, you know, that it's not perpetual progress. So take as long as you'd like, but share some of your story of how you came to be where you are now, and were there any particularly challenging emotional times uh, in that process, as there has been for many of us? Okay. Um, I was interested in your first question, about language. And oh, well, go, yeah, let's, let's go there first then. So what, what was the term post-doom post mean? And I think it's, it doesn't mince words, it doesn't soften the message, which is good. But I think a lot of people uh, are, they interpret doom as in a, in a very emotional way, a negative emotional way that probably doesn't help to tell the message. <laughs> right. So I've been looking for other ways to talk about that for quite a while. I, I use the term energy descent, which I think is accurate, but uh, tends to be abstract and people don't think about the implications of the energy we use. So it doesn't really tell them too much. Right. And I've been, I like, re more recently, I like the word, the, the phrase, the great simplification. Mm -hmm. For a couple of reasons, 
it uh, it doesn't it doesn't soften the message. <laughs> no, it's a great simplification. In my term, in my estimate of it is that we we will no longer have industrial civilization as we know it, or or maybe any industrial civilization. Um, in fact, I'm I kind of think that the word civilization, like civilization reboot, is not the best way to put it either because people will will kind of grasp onto the word civilization and say, oh, we can get it back, right? <laughs> Which right. is, I don't think, uh, from the point of you know, the laws of thermodynamics, possible. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And, uh, so, but the great, if, if we, there's, there was a, a part of the, the early ecological movement in the 60s and 70s talked about the positive aspects of of, of a simpler society. Um, there was uh, Shoemaker's Small is Beautiful. A lot, of, a lot of people wrote about that kind of thing. And so I think that's a, that kind of induces a, a positive way of thinking about uh, when we go back to a simpler, a, a lower energy society. Yeah, I, I agree. I, just yesterday, I had a conversation with um, Sam Alexander uh, in Melbourne, and he's part of the Simplicity Institute there. And one of the main things we were discussing was the, the were the benefits, the uh, advantages of living in a simpler, um, less energy intensive, less consumerist uh, and thing oriented way. Right. And I can talk more about that, that the influence of okay, yeah, anthropological studies on how I think about this simplification as we get more into it. But but yeah. I agree with you know some of the other words you use, catabolic collapse. I'm sure that's that's built in to the process. Your, your microphone, just so you know, your microphone moved a little bit further away from your mouth. So if you could put it a little bit closer. Yeah. Yep. There we go. How about that? That's great. Thanks. Okay. So. Yeah, I, I, I think people like uh, John Greer have talked a lot about the catabolic collapse, and I think he's got a pretty well pers persuasive yes. um, discussion of that. Um, it involves population die-off for sure. With so, so much less energy, you can only have so many people supported. And that gets to my understanding, my study of ecology, that there's a carrying capacity and the carrying capacity is going to erode when you don't have the energy to support it. Well, you know something, say, uh, because you've mentioned it already in terms of energy descent, and I completely agree, there will be some people who will be either seeing this or listening to this conversation that aren't quite sure, they're maybe new to this. So say a little bit about energy descent um, and the great simplification in terms of like physical reality of it. Right. Well, what we know from the laws of thermodynamics is you can't create or destroy energy or matter. That's the first law. And the second is that you got to keep, you got to keep energy pulsing through whatever you're producing or it's going to fall apart. That's, that's kind of the entropy law the things fall apart law that some people call it. And when we, you're, you, and we're depleting the finite source of energy that we have, which is the fossil fuels, then it's inevitable that at some point you just don't have them in enough, you, you still have them, but they're so difficult to get out that the, 
energy cost becomes too great. Yes. One a good example of that is uh, corn ethanol. It's actually uses more energy than it produces. Exactly. And um, the, the, pers the, the emphasis on um, so-called renewables has the same problem that the, the energy, the net energy that you get out of them is just not enough to run into industrial civilization. So that's kind of the physics basics of it. <laughs> that's great. So there's a decreasing energy return on energy invested, meaning that it, it keeps taking more energy and more money in many cases to get energy. Um, and so that diminishing returns uh, notion and, yeah. and that solar and wind panels and uh, other forms of, of so-called renewable technologies require a lot of fossil fuels in their own construction and transportation and what have you, but they also don't have the return to be able to empower anything like an industrial civilization. Right. Yeah. And, and we can save the fossil fuels, but that means we don't get to use them. So right. there's really no op option other than, uh, as uh, Heinberg has said, powering down. I'm assuming at some point you had an understanding of sort of the secular religion of perpetual progress and then that shifted. So how, how was that for you? Yeah, well, I've tried to kind of con condense it into four or five points. Um, I th one of the things is that, that I think the way I differ from other people who have gone through this process and some of the other main writers in the peak oil movement differ too, is that they, they don't talk much about grief. Yeah. Greer, Hagen, Orloff, Kunstler, even Martinson most of the time don't really talk much about grief. And I've felt very little grief either. And so I've kind of thought, tried to think about, well, why did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> and I think along with some of these other writers, most of us are, are, are getting a, on an age. And, and, and we've been at this kind of journey for quite a long time. In my case, since the 1960s, I'm, I turned 81 yesterday. Oh. <laughs> so well, <laughs> so I, I've got this, this long journey behind me and it started quite a long time ago. And I think that's true of some of these other um, more fame, more well-known writers as well. And so that we've been able to go the, at this, this transition slowly enough that it, it never triggered an emotional response that I would call grief, at least not yet. <laughs> Maybe it'll happen later on, I don't know. But that's, that's an interesting thing. And um, so when I try to think about how I would talk about the journey of transition, you know, I, I say, well, I have to go really go back to my, my 20s. And at that time, that was just getting into the 1960s, um, which was a time of upheaval and, and critique of society as it were, as it was, um, that uh, I felt um, was familiar to me because I grew up in a rural environment, and so I was not, until I was uh, in my uh, mid-teens, 
my, until I was about 12, I really, the only, um, the only uh, input I got about the modern world was from my parents who were scientists. And they said, they taught me how things work and to be think, to think critically about how things work. And unfortunately for um, maybe the institutions, I started to think about how institutions work. And so I started going to school and I got the feeling by the time I was in my late elementary school, there was something really flawed about schooling, <laughs> but I didn't know what it was. <laughs> um, but I started getting a feeling of pushback against the institution. And that just got worse. Um, I went to uh, what was considered a very good liberal arts college, but, and their, their, their ideal was to um, create the, the wealth well-rounded education, but most of the subjects were taught by specialists and say so they really couldn't deliver the goods. <laughs> what school? So I got very unhappy with my industrial, with my liberal arts education, supposed liberal arts education, and started looking around for alternatives. And I found a guy who was studying both Marx and Freud, which was both of which were taboo <laughs> to a lot of, of social science. And then I got a chance to go to study in Paris. And so it's, there was a, a much broader range of political and economic thought in Europe at the time. And I said, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So I started studying, you know, taking advantage of that. And so when the 60s came around, I had a pretty good vantage point from which to criticize society. And, and I had gone, um, my wife and I, as soon as we were married, we, um, we decided to take leave of industrial society and, and, and go work in Africa. And so I taught school in Africa for a couple of years and that led to anthropological studies but it also gave me a feeling that simple societies were not just primitive, terrible places. <laughs> uh, I would visit, visit villages where, um, you know, Kunstler has this series called World Made by Hand. I would visit villages where everything was made by hand. <laughs> I said, wow, this is great. I was interested in, in, um, in music from a very early age and very sophisticated musical instruments in West Africa were, were made by hand <laughs> from, you know, goat skins and, and, and wood and stuff like that. And so that, that was quite an epiphany. So that set me up to study anthropology and to study so-called primitive societies in ways that were not negative. Yes. They were positive. Yes. And so that, that was, uh, kind of an early um, beginning to, I guess, what I would call the journey of transition. Um, then I, because I was required in graduate school to study uh, ecology, actually it was Eugene Odom's book that you've talked about, um, which was an early pioneer. Well, of, ma ma mention the title of that book here for people listening to this conversation. 
I, I think it was just an introduction to ecology. I, I can't remember the exact title, but yeah. Eugene Odoms was the first to do a textbook. It's yeah. a very small textbook. Um, and actually, as I mentioned to you, it was his brother who really expanded the, the, um, the discipline and really made it a, a scientific discipline based on uh, energy um, flow and energy uh, storages and and actually came out with a, a general, um, developed a general framework for studying complex systems, whether they're human societies or natural ecosystems or, or even inanimate systems like our planetary social system. You can, you, it's all in terms of, an ed, of, of depleting an energy gradient, all activity everywhere, whether it's inanimate or animate, it is like that. And so that's, that's what I got into later on. But I got in, I got into, I quit, I quit graduate school. I didn't even want to be involved in the institution of academia. And um, for seven years, we went back to Europe and I kind of did a, um, a self-apprenticeship in farming. We had goats and we had sheep and, um, and there were people who still used those simpler technologies mm -hmm. um, that I could learn from a little bit. And when we came back, I got involved in the um, organic farming movement and I found an ecologist, a range ecologist by the name of Alan Savory who wrote a book called Holistic Management. Mm -hmm. um, I have a copy here if you want to. Yeah, I've, I've actually, uh, I've looked at that. I don't own it, but uh, I've also watched uh, several uh, presentations of his online. Yeah, he's got into kind of sequestering carbon, but the, originally, uh, the original idea was first with farmers, but then with just about anybody to, to create a framework for decision-making where you would look at the larger context of things. Mm -hmm. It's really a pushback against the whole way of doing science in the modern age, which was reductionist. Mm -hmm. which, you know, it's it's uh, um, the, the Latin word that they use, the phrase that they use is ceteris paribus, which is everything else being equal. In other words, you shove all of the other aspects of reality aside, and you just look at a couple of them in a laboratory context. And that's what a lot of scientists have done for the last three centuries. And, and, and the technologies that have come out of that don't take into account the context. And so that's been the problem. Exactly. And so I was very excited about, you know, discovering holistic management under um, Alan Savory and he did some um, training of teachers, and I trained to be a teacher. Um, and then I and kind of I brought that training into the um, organic farming movement because I thought the organic farming movement had really no ecological um, framework to work from because it was hit of hit and miss kind of thing. Um, we were making progress, but. There was no agricultural science in the land grant agricultural schools that was ecological ecosystem based mm -hmm. and the, the program was all pretty much 
separate stuff. Soil scientists, um, weed science, livestock science, but not the whole enchilada because you have to, you know, the whole idea of holism is you have to study thing problems from the point of view of the whole. And yes. Savory's, you know, really starting point when he would talk would be um, the world functions, world functions in holes. And if we don't manage it that way, then we're, we're, in, we're in deep trouble. Yes. And so I was energized to kind of share that first with, with fellow farmers and then, and then uh, more, more broadly with the stuff I've written on my website. And I haven't written a lot of published stuff the way people like Greer and Kunstler have, but uh, during that time, I got some people interested in holistic management and we wrote a little book called Whole Farm Planning that actually used Savory's model and, and uh, adapted it to where I was, where we were doing farming in the Northeast. And that's, that's this book. I don't know if you can yeah, see I it. Yeah, I can see it. Whole Farm Planning, Ecological Imperatives, Personal Values, and Economics. That's right. great. I've not seen that. And so with a, a couple of us co-authored that book. And so that, that, that for a long time, that was really the, the only publication in hard copy that, that I've done. Uh, I, I focus mostly on, on talking in the ecological agriculture movement. And then when I retired, I got a chance to, to, uh, to run a course for four years in ecological agriculture as part of a environmental studies program for undergraduates. And I'd studied kind of simpler pre-industrial uh, healthy agroecosystems enough so that I could bring all of that into, into that course. And, and that was very exciting for me. Where, where did you teach that? Uh, at the University of Binghamton. It's part of the State University of New York. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've been there. Big, big university, but the environmental studies program, as you can might quite imagine, was rather un unfunded <laughs> compared to, say, economics or whatever. Right. But um, I really enjoyed that, and I got a chance to talk about um, the energy descent or um, to, to undergraduates and see how they would react, you know. And so I got a t chance to test that every year for four years. <laughs> wow. And at the same time, um, I, um, my farm was near Ithaca, New York, which is the, the Ithacans consider themselves the Berkeley of the West, of the East, the kind right. of the progressive city of the East. Um, and, and, and so there were a group of us, maybe half a dozen of us who decided to actually share the energy descent story um, by doing some writing, putting it up on, on a website, um, and we called it Tompkins County Relocalization. We were taking the whole county as a, as a whole to work with, and how would that need to change as the energy uh, went away? And um, so I wrote a lot for that, and quite a bit of that is, is on my website as well. Mm -hmm. um, that website, tclocal.org, is 
it still exists in a kind of a a simplistic way, but it it's kind of toned down. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have all the bells and whistles that it used to have, mm -hmm. but it's still there. People want to see it, and all the all the writing is still there. Um, and we we did some hard copy publishing. We 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 sent it around to all the people we thought were influentials, you know, in 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 Tompkins County, and it didn't get a lot of traction. <laughs> so I'm thinking, wow, this is really hard. <laughs> yes. And so a lot of other people who were doing that kind of thing had encountered the same problem, you know, the, 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 what's now the proverbial um, Cassandra syndrome, you know, the <laughs> story of Cassandra's. She got um, um, a, a witch turned her into a, you know, I forget, I forget what they call it in those days, but she she uh, she got bewitched and so so that she knew the truth of everything she could tell foretell everything but she but nobody would believe her yes, so that's sure. kind sort of the of problem a, a, that we've a had. prophet a prophet doomed to never be able to be accepted right right and so we've i i i, I think a lot of us have been struggling with that ever since yes um so that's kind of my early um, transition. Um, I always went back to my rural childhood to kind of draw on what what was a, a non-urban existence mm -hmm. like, you know, because I've been, I've lived in Paris, I lived in Geneva, Switzerland. I've spent uh, quite a bit of time in New York City, but I always go go back, and I guess that's what drew me back to farming too. This time. People said, "Well, farmers—they can't make any money." But my, my, my one of the attractions was well, I could go back yes. to my rural childhood and enjoy all those things yes. that um, you know you can't enjoy in academia and city life and so on and so forth. And so I did, and I, I have really enjoyed uh, being a farmer ever since, just for that reason alone. Yes, and 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 thinking about well, what what how could we change farming and how would that look in other aspects of life? And trying to uh, model when I was a uh, full-time farmer, some of those changes. Uh, for example, I, uh, I did a lot of my work with uh, draft horse power. And I, I, I studied, I got really interested in the, the Amish because of that. And uh, because of my social science background, I, you know, I, I knew how to read that kind of literature, the literature of Amish sociology. So I read books like, uh, like this one, the Amish study for the Amish struggle with, oh wow, with modernity. Yeah, the Amish struggle with modernity, right? And you can see a picture of the the, the big uh, round bale, right? Uh, and the, actually the the farmers that took over from me, um, what you do is you have a draft horses, you have a, maybe six or eight of them pulling a a forecart with a motor on it that can run th things like this round baler. And the, the people that took over went the next step and they, they did that. Mm -hmm. But but that gets, in, gets the Amish into uh, a situation that 
everybody is, is going to be into in the energy descent. Yeah. And so that was very interesting to me that you're trying to keep hold of these technologies, but it sucks you in to reliance on, on stuff that you really need to get away from. So that was an interesting experience, uh, the, the, this, the str struggle with the, of the Amish that um, their youth um, cannot, are more and more moving away from the Amish ideal. And, and it's, that's part of their, the sociology, sociology of their struggle. Mm. It, and, it's, and it's kind of a tragedy. But there are Amish who, who maintain the old ideas and it's what's interesting what was interesting to me is as an anthropologist i saw that they they used religion to to maintain a technology that is actually uh, more sustainable than most of what we have today yes and so the uh, the 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 anthropological idea that religion can have not just a negative aspect but it can have a positive aspect in society is something that the Amish actually made use of, and I could study that. Yes, well, I, I've been influenced along those lines by reading um, Edward Teddy Goldsmith's uh, 1978, I think, uh, book called The Stable Society, uh, what he means is a sustainable society, uh -huh. uh, and then his, his magnum opus, The Way, An Ecological Worldview where he really talks about the role of religion, the role of life ways in helping to ensure that limits are honored as invaluable, as sacred. Um, and that without that element in society, without some element of society, usually religion or life ways, speaking with moral authority, um, that, uh, uh, that the future must never be compromised by the present without some moral voice in insisting uh, on accountability to the future, uh, then societies simply by pursuing what's good for them in the moment can actually be destructive of the soil, the forest, the water, the life upon which they and their grandchildren and great-grandchildren will depend. Uh-huh. Well, I would ag agree with all, all of that. I, I would push back a little bit. I, I, I got interested because you mentioned the way, and so I read, I read it. And I would push back a little bit against this idea that um, somehow we can find in, um, in the history of humanity um, a, a purpose in the sense of a intelligent design or a divine purpose. I, I, think well, I certainly did. I didn't read him that way. I mean, he, he, he talked about Telios within the, within the living world in terms of sort of Gaia, but I don't think he meant it. Whatever, whatever he meant is somewhat irrelevant. I agree with you um, that the uh, <laughs> that purpose is an interpretive term, and there is no one purpose. But yeah. but uh, if if our if, from my own sense, if if our sense of our purpose, if how we interpret our purpose as groups or as a species or as individuals, if that doesn't include living in a way that's a blessing to the future. If it's simply, if we don't see our purpose as in some way uh, ensuring accountability to the future, then I think we have a self-destructive <laughs> sense of mission or purpose. Sure, sure. Yeah, I would just, 
I guess my interpretation of Goldsmith was that he was kind of encroaching on what what we know, I think, about evolutionary biology and what we know from system science, that there's an, there's an uncertainty that comes to play such that there could have been another um, direction that society took uh, at the advent of agriculture, but, but, every, but we don't really know, there's no kind of final cause yes. leading us to a certain future. Yes, yes. And exactly. then I read a book, um, a couple of ecologists by the name of Schneider and Sagan wrote a book called Into the Cool, into Energy the cool from thermodynamics, energy flow, thermodynamics, and life. Right. And and who are the authors? Uh, Schneider and Sagan. Oh, Dorian Sa Sagan. Oh, Dorian, and Sa Dorian Sagan. That's Carl Sagan's son. Yes. And what what's interesting about their book? He went. Um, it, it's all about how we can look at all activity in the universe as. Um, depleting an energy gradient. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you or should yeah, I? No, no, I yes. no, I'm familiar with this. Uh, I'll, I'll be getting a copy of that book, thanks to your recommendation. Yeah, and interestingly enough, the last chapter is called oh, Purpose, Purpose in Life. life. Okay. <laughs> and I said, oh, holy cow, what's he gonna say? <laughs> he said, well, if there's a purpose in life, it's to degrade an energy gradient. <laughs> But not beyond that, because we can't really tell how things are going to turn out. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of um, what I know from systems science or complexity science or holistic science, whatever you want to call it, is that um, at any moment, um, things can take a new turn because um, initial conditions change the direction of activity. Mm -hmm. And that, that's kind of a, a cardinal principle of, of complexity science, that initial, it's kind of comes out of chaos theory. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. if you can, if a, if a, if a, uh, a butterfly flaps its wings in Tokyo, a tor it might create a tornado to happen in Havana. No, that's kind of thing. And so, but if it doesn't flap its wings, then something else might happen in Havana, you know? So, so at any point, um, history can take a new direction. And we don't really, we can't really say that there's an ultimate goal to that. Right, no, exactly. And, but, but that whatever those directions are, they happen within a certain set of thermodynamic and ecological constraints. Right. So what Schneider and Sagan are saying is, that if you want to talk about a purpose in life, it's to degrade a gradient. <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, that's, that's, that's what I got out of that. Yeah. Well, thanks for recommending that. So coming back to your own story, your own uh, life experience. I guess one of the other, few other things I would say is there's a lot of debate in the Energy Descent uh, Network about what we can do. And one of the lessons for me for the 60s, being in the anti-war movement as I was, 
and was to realize just how much mind control there is and 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 how little um, impact the anti-war movement or any part of the 60s had on that. In fact, it was actually a, a reaction against that whole whole thing mm -hmm. uh, later on in the 70s and 80s and 90s. So um, I, I asked myself, well, so what, what can we do in the face of, of this mind control? And I could see that the large centralized institutions were going to go on and because they they had control of our minds but in small much smaller scale we could start doing things and so that and, and that was kind of the the sense that the people in the Tompkins County relocalization movement had to call it relocalization they thought if we if we could if we could uh, do it help the transition along at the very much smaller scale um, people talk about the dunbar scale uh, 100 to 200 people mm -hmm. is the the only really successful size for a community uh, maybe it's bigger than that i don't know but no, um, you know there were communities in that i saw in west africa of 2000 3000 people there was a, a headman but his anthropologists have found that that in, the, in those types of societies, um, the, the kings, the, the headmen, the rulers, whatever you want to call them, were pretty much hedged around with a lot of cons constraints. And uh, you know, although they could go berserk and kill a lot of people if they wanted to, pretty much most of the time they didn't and, and they had to follow these constraints. And so that, that may, there may be a, a, a spectrum of population range from up, up to two or three or four thousand or or more where you could actually have a decent society yes, yes. and so that that's been my kind of direction of of thinking ever since sure so I, I, I there are a lot of people who want to kind of change the world by by going to washington or 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 going to the united nations and i, I just don't think that's going to happen anymore yeah. So I just want to throw that out as, yeah. as my take on knowing what I knew about capitalist political economy. I, I think they're pretty much control in control all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> At I, least for I, a long time. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, are you familiar with, uh, actually, uh, David Sloan Wilson, I believe, also lives in Binghamton, and he wrote a book on neighborhood, applying evolutionary principles to a neighborhood scale organizing. Are you familiar with David and, and that book? I'm familiar with his writings, but not that book. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you could send me a... I'll, I'll do that. I'll send you the link because uh, David, I've st Connie and I have stayed uh, with him and Anne a couple times when we've been in Binghamton. I've spoken at the Unitarian Church and uh, uh -huh. um, I think I spoke at the university as well. Binghamton University is an interesting place, even though it's a, a large university. There's something called the Brodell Institute, and and this is a um, people people who are kind of marginalized by conventional social science. They picked up on a trend in in Europe called the World Systems, uh, and 
there was a political scientist, political economist, who was really into world systems, and he created the Brodel instrument. And Brodel is a Frenchman who was very instrumental in in the the world system. So they they take a very um, holistic, long range view of society, going back through history. History is very important, and and the broader view of of not just economy or politics or religion or but but the, the larger enchilada, so to speak. There there have been critics throughout the modern age of the modern age itself, and one of them was Oswald Spengler, and I've read his book, and. Uh, uh, Weber wrote a book about, uh, he's written about uh, um, Protestant and capitalism and mm -hmm. the modern age and how Protestantism has kind of facilitated capitalism. Very much so. they, there is a synergy between the two. And so that, I've read those. Um, Can't think of anything else right off, but I'll. I'll did Did you read Toynbee? I'm curious. Arnold uh, Toynbee. Pieces of it, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar that's, yeah. with the, the thesis, but right. But Toynbee, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> many of us have have read pieces of uh, of Toynbee. Spengler too is quite a read. Oh yeah, he's terrible. <laughs> he's, he's, he's all over the map with the way he writes. But once you 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 know grind your way through it. It makes a lot of sense. What's your take on sort of the big picture and, uh, and do you well, see? Because of what I am taking from lessons from uh, complexity science, I don't think the past that we've had is inevitable. I think it could have t t taken a different turn at any point. That, that's the, their view on, on how things happen. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I don't think for the same reason that we're, we're doomed to a particular future. I think what we're do, we're, we're, what we probably both agree on is that we're constrained um, by a future, but how that will happen and, and um, how the transition will take place is pretty uncertain and, and we can only do scenarios. Yeah. And so I've spent a lot of time trying to th think and write about scenarios. Um, uh, I, I did a piece that I have on my, my website, uh, cities, let's see, I, I, cities in, in the suburbs in the energy descent, um, just, cities being pretty vulnerable yes. to to this transition period um, because of the amount of energy that they use. Um, so what will replace them? Will there be anything left of cities? And, and so I did some writing about that. Ways we could talk about the energy descent in a positive way. And so I wrote something that's on the website called the benefits to uh, It would be uh, an outline of benefits from a lower energy civilization. 
I kind of boiled it down. It seemed as the more I got into it, the more it seemed. I, I actually wrote this in a, as co-authored with your, your your microphone is is way away from you. Then sorry. No uh, so I I as I got into the subject, I realized that it's you know, you have to take a holistic point of view. <laughs> so the it, the the benefits are are in in all aspects of life. You know, in social relations. You know that if we get and technological solutions that that aren't damaging at, at a lower energy in a lower energy society that's a benefit and if we get uh, you know if we get back to a kind of human scale human scale communities we, we don't get this alienation and and anomie that the marxists and and the social sciences have have written about that is so typical of the modern age and everybody's yes. kind of and the individualism so yes. we can get back to a more of a more of a cooperative uh types of communities of of which i saw in among the amish and 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 in in my uh work in west africa yes of course they're, they're much more co cooperative and so reading the anthropological literature that cooperated that that there were social relations in earlier types of societies that were much more um, healthy, even, even gender relations were more healthy than, than what we have today. Mm -hmm. So that, that was uh, something I wrote about. And of course the, the economy um, being a much more local economy, people being much, much more local control of that economy. Yes. And we had a little taste of that because I, I was part of a Ithaca farmer's market in Ithaca, in the, in the city of Ithaca. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a very successful one because of the kind of city Ithaca, the kind of population community Ithaca is. And so we were able to make a, a very small dent in the way people uh, consumers interact with farmers and, and how that would look like, how that would look when, when everybody, when, when it had, had to be a lot more farmers <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and people were mu much closer in touch with the places where they got their food. You know, we, I always invited people that came to our booth and farmer's market, come out to our farm and see what it's like, you know. See how yes. we produce it. Well, you've got a whole bunch of them that are related to visioning uh, county food production. That's uh, it, right? That's it. Yeah, you've got uh, part looks like six part series on that. So th that was a an, an early contribution to what would a county food system look like, both at the farming level and in town, you know, the consuming level. Um, when there was uh, no more fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. And I, I drew on kind of anthropological and his, his, historical examples of uh, really productive, but, but quite sustainable, relatively sustainable um, farming systems, like uh, actually wetland systems like the Aztecs had in, in Mexico City. Mm. but also 
even colonial America, uh, there were there were farming systems based on uh, floodplains. Yes. Um, in in uh, Nor in New England, where the part of the plain would be flooded and would bring in um, new soil. Uh, actually, soil that had run down off the off the hills where they were doing row crop agriculture. And so it would be recaptured and then uh, recycled through um, haying and livestock and, and manure mm -hmm. in that farming system. So that's, that, that occurred in places in New England where there were these uh, floodplains along streams. So it was actually something that we can retrieve from uh, the history of, of farming. Mm -hmm. Carl, uh, I want to ask you, again, one of the things that I want to do in this series is point people to particularly excellent resources and your website uh, and your core papers and your course uh, are that. So to say a little bit about sort of the two uh, papers at the very top, Invisible Ships and Boiling Frogs, The End of Industrial Affluence and systems thinking for problem solvers. Say something a little bit about that and, uh, and also about the course that you have uh, linked there, which is um, understanding problem situations as if complexity mattered, an introductory course in systems thinking. Oh yes, that, that reminds me, I, I was asked to, to do an online introductory course in systems thinking uh, that had a few cycles of operation but it didn't last because there wasn't it's even there it's it was hard to get people to sure. transition to out of reductionist thinking to systems thinking and and to value it but but for me it, it was very valuable and and uh, i still have all of those course materials that i put on my website so anybody who wants to use those uh i think that's one way, there, there have been a lot of introductions to systems thinking, but I, I think systems thinking gets us a, a big step in the direction of thinking about the tr energy transition. Yes. So I would recommend that any kind of introduction to, to systems thinking is uh, not just mine. Yeah. It's a way and to go. And that's great. And you mentioned the age of modernity and its discontents. Is that a presentation? Is that a course? What is that? That's a, a paper that I wrote and it's on my website. Um, the, the key themes of modernity that I wanted to talk about were capitalism and the reductionist way of doing science and how they fed into each other, how they, there was a synergy between them Got it. And if we can be aware of, of that kind of narrative and how it's taken over our thinking, then we can get away from both of those ways of thinking and, and think more easily about the energy descent and, and what's next. So that was what, the, what was the motive for the age of modernity. Yeah, yeah. Well, the last question that I want to ask, uh, Carl, is related to, you know, the fact that you celebrated your 81st birthday yesterday, that you've been in this for so long and had this awareness so that uh, the, the, you know, 
grief isn't the first thing that comes up for you because you've been intellectually aware of these patterns for, for decades. And yet you've also expressed a couple of times um, the reality that there are those of us who are speaking from an ecologically grounded systemic place and the reception that we get among our friends, family, neighbors, and the wider public is so frustratingly small. How has that been for you? You're, you're now 81 years old. I mean, as you, as you feel, not just think about the future, um, where, where does your heart hurt and, and how do you take care of that? Well, I wish I could be more broadly effective, but I live, uh, when I retired from commercial farming, we moved to uh, a part of Maine that's always had a very, um, a almost dead economy. It was, it was based on fishing and factory fishing took over and they fished it out. And so there wasn't much left except summer people and doing construction for summer people and stuff like that. So it's been an economy in decline for a long time. And people have had to make do by becoming kind of jack of all trades. They would, they would piece things together and they would, and they would trade with each other. And so my, my uh, present activity <laughs> along those lines is um, to kind of facilitate this, uh, what I call a, grift, a, a gift economy. Yes. Um, it gets away from money. And, and I've, I've noticed that a lot of people have obligations to each other where, where they're just um, um, fulfilling these obligations when there's no money involved. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, a bunch of these people are my neighbors. And back in New York, you didn't have people like that. <laughs> yeah. except among the Amish, you know, and I didn't live among the Amish at that time. And so that, that's, um, that's encouraging. Mm. And, and so I've been trying to, in a very small way, facilitate that. But, you know, apart from online discussions of, that uh, don't progress very quickly, um, of the ener energy descent. Um, that's been my main focus. I have written, I, I, I mentioned before that I, I, I'm interested in what, what the, some of the scenarios might happen. Mm -hmm. We don't know what, what will happen, but we can, we can look at the, the way the energy is going to deplete and we can look at what's left and what are the possibilities. And being a, trained as a social science as well, I wrote a piece called, uh, for, for a, uh, actually I got interested in, in uh, people like John Michael Greer's um, fiction and in Kunstler's fiction. And I thought, wow, the fiction actually is having much more of a dent than those of us nonfiction writers. And uh, I don't think I'm, I'm gonna be, uh, a fiction writer anytime soon, but I did think that I could well um, bring that kind of feeling into writing about uh, energy descent. And there's been a small um, attempt, uh, actually facilitated by Greer, 
um, to collect some of these fictional works, mostly um, uh, short stories, into uh, a quarterly called Into the Ruins. Are you familiar oh, with yes, that? yes, yes. I've seen him talk about that, Into the Ruins. Okay. Right. And so, uh, so I wrote to the editor. I said, well, look, uh, what would be good is be to, to uh, publish some nonfiction as well, because the fiction writers could, and the nonfiction writers could learn from each other. There'd be kind of a synergy between the two. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, okay, I, I wrote, uh, let's see. Um, I wrote a piece, which is on my website, that uh, I said, well, why don't you publish this? It's, the Prospect of a New Gothic Age in the United States. Yeah, that's on the website, but, but uh, in the, the latest issue is summer 2019, and so he published that, so I'm published, finally. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know how far that'll get, because... Yeah, right. Well, it'll... it'll his readership uh, is... But uh, uh, in, in the, uh, that was a takeoff on a lot of the stuff that I got from Spengler, who wrote about the, the mm -hmm. Gothic age. And since, since there's so many fundamentalists in, in the United States, I, I thought, you know, this would be a subject we really should study. <laughs> because the, the, what Spengler found out was that the Gothic age was, uh, um, was driven by um, it, it happened recurrently. It happened uh, back in uh, biblical times, um, with uh, with an uphold uh, with, uh, with the beginning of monotheisms and and all these different sects that tried to deal with the breakdown gradually of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So it it, 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 it it in Spengler's idea, Gothic's uh, age occurs every time that there's this breakdown and people are trying to deal with it. And this happened in the Middle Ages, of course, with the, in Europe with the breakdown of the Roman Empire and then the Reformation, which made things even worse. So <laughs> uh, I, I quoted, uh, I don't know whether Spenglers or somebody else that said there were 17 million witches burned to death in the 17th century alone. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think during that, the Gothic I, age. Yeah, I think I think scholarship has considerably reduced that number, but yes. <laughs> well, it may be, but um, uh, the point being that um, this could happen with the breakdown of of uh, industrial civilization, exactly, exactly. as well, and the, a prime uh, place for it might be the United States. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.